Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of the Philosophy Exchange podcast. Today, I am joined by Johanna, and we're here to launch a new episode of the new series, Talking with Your Favorite Philosopher. Today, our guest is Liam Kofi Bright, who is an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. Liam received his Master of Science and PhD in Logic, Computation, and Methodology from Philosophy Department at Carnegie Mellon University and is currently teaching at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Recently, Liam also received the Philip Leverhulme Prize, which is for researchers at an early stage of their careers, whose work has had international impact and whose future research career is exceptionally promising. So we're here to welcome Liam. Our call is now as widely distributed over the globe as it could almost be. So for you, it's like 7 a.m. and for for Liam, it's 1 p.m. and for me, it's 4 p.m. Something, something LSE carrying out a global future for tomorrow, whatever. You know. Exactly. We should have a logo about this. Yeah, sure there is. So... Uh, First of all, we have you on the podcast because all of us really admire your work. And so before we go into anything, we definitely want to work on what are the questions you're working on currently. Uh, sure. What does so, that laugh about? Well, I just don't think you should admire my work. I think I've like, you're both former students of mine. And if you can't identify my work as bad, then I haven't taught you what I was kind of one thing. Okay. Um, so what I'm currently working on is a few different things. Um, so one thing I've just continued from my um, previous lines of research is I've been thinking about how we organize science. And in particular, this question of whether or not um, scientists should be made to pre-register all their studies, which is to say, before um, getting to publish something, you have to indicate here's the experiment I intend to do, here's the result we're gonna be looking at, um, and then make that information publicly available, have a database somewhere where anyone could search what you're trying to do. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why people think this might be good, but it turns out there are also good reasons why scientists don't wanna do it. From their point of view, it's a waste of time. And I've been, uh, me and a co-author, I'm Claire Hayson, it's a frequent co-author of mine. We've been thinking about what's going on there. A bit more spicily, I've also been working with Femi Taiwo um, on what's called the racial capitalism thesis. So this is a claim that why do we have the institutions we have nowadays um, around the world really? And it comes down to uh, what it is and how it is that institutions spread through colonialism. The thought being that about the time the European countries were Sort of becoming sufficiently wealthy to really sort of spread their social form via 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 capitalism, via sorry via colonialism, then they had kind of two things going on. They were sort of undergoing bourgeois capitalist revolutions themselves, becoming economies organized that way, but also in European countries, in Ireland and in Poland especially, there had already been kind of sort of proto versions of racism organized. They'd already been kind of organizing their workforce on a kind of racist lines and sort of quasi-racial theories to justify and explain who goes where. And when they started spreading this to other places and then later employing slaves from Africa, um, they just kind of, they imported both things. They both imported the, the, the capitalist um, institutional structure, but also this way of organizing the labor force. And so it's kind of a, it's the same event which spreads capitalism across the globe and and racial organization of the population across the globe. 
Um, and me and Femi Taiwo have been exploring aspects of that, thinking about what notion, thinking about some of the conceptual underpinnings. And that's been great fun because it gets me in lots of fights on the internet. I had, a, I had like a very prominent scholar like insult me in a very insulting article. That's wonderful. I live for that. Like I just, this is, this to me is, it's like sugar, it's like nectar from the gods. And so I'm living my best life really. That is perfect. We actually have some questions regarding the best moments that define you as a philosopher and the highlights that actually makes you glad to be a philosopher. Yep. So we'll get to those later, those fights on Twitter. Oh, that's awesome. So first of all, what the first thing that you talked about with the pre-registration, I always thought that something that's that everybody sees as is merely good, um, where it's it's obvious that not everyone is using it. So like having somebody write about why people are not using it, why it's not, that's really cool. My other question, and I think that what you just talked about, these two things showed really nicely that you are always a person who works in so many different fields and so many different disciplines at the same time. And I was just wondering how that works out for you. And if you, like in terms of um, how you work together with colleagues or um, do you actually, would you see yourself as like part of a philosopher group or you're more like, just like spreading out and doing whatever you find interesting? Firstly, thank you for the kind words. Um, I think when you say coming from a different angle, if I'm in any way different from my peers, it's just because I have an unusual combination of background interests. And so the, the, the literature or the prior knowledge I'm bringing to bear is unusual, typically a kind of more social social aspect. Okay, so with regard to working in different areas, yes, absolutely, that's a feature of what I do. And that, that's, that's long been a feature, uh, having kind of uh, unusual combinations of, of stuff. The reason for that is kind of, is many fold. I mean, I think a, a fact about my psychology is that if I work on just one thing for a long time, I get bored. Um, so having lots of different things I can like flip between um, means that eventually all of the projects get done, but you know, I'm, I'm never working on just one at the same time and they run different areas. Um, this record has served me great, except for one kind of key moment in your career, which was writing up a dissertation where you really have to be working on just one thing. And I turned out to like not have a fun time with that at all. And my dissertation is like very far from my best work because it's just, it was a quite an unnatural way of, of for me to to do things um so partly it's that psychological fact it's just a thing which gets me going but it's also partly on the basis of like why i went into academia i've always been very strategic about being in academia i think people romanticize it it's a job like any other and i want to get a position and so i was thinking about how to do that but that made me think about you know what am i willing to be strategic about and what's just bedrock me what's what's non-negotiable and one thing I thought was, if I'm, you know, if I'm able to get a PhD, especially in a sort of with vaguely mathsy skills required, I could 100% go and get paid more to do something else. Like it, it can't be full of money. Um, it's can't, it's not even for the social esteem. No one likes philosophers. Um, I, it's the lifestyle. I like the lifestyle. You know, I've got my you can't see you, it was a podcast, I guess, but I've got my big load of books behind me. I like to just think about whatever I'm interested in and um, pursue that and have conversations about that and start conversations about that and so on. Um, that matters to me. 
And so I just thought like, for me, a condition of this being worth it, a condition of this being a worthwhile way to spend my life of the income sacrifices it involves of, of moving all around the place away from my friends and family is that I never give that up. That I never give up the freedom to just do what I want to do, to, to get to research what I want to research, think about what I want to think about. And so working on these different areas at the same time is for me like what I'm in it for, just because I'm interested in a lot of things. And so that's it. I just, I just want to pursue that. So sort of an anti-specialization instinct. As to if I'm any part of any philosophy groups, well, I'd say I'm part of lots of philosophy groups. I like having being able to cultivate these different different areas. And in some ways, maybe this is part of what I use social media for. I also like to think I'm constructing a group which is combines my interests. So you know, you two are my, you know, some of my proteges. And so he's gone and spread the gospel. I love that. But because I think it's uh, it's especially something that I feel is actually I'm being discouraged from exploring different areas at the same time. And um, when when I first started working with you um, through like my, my thesis, I actually realized that there is a chance for me to be that kind of philosopher, so to have different interests and to not necessarily narrow down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the, the thing is, is there is you know, basically economic stuff, right? There's there's real advantages to division of labor and specialization. It's, it's not nothing. And so there's a lot of pressure in a, in a highly competitive environment like trying to get academic jobs to specialize in order to like do something better than other people can do it and thus help compete. I think the way to square this circle of getting to do many different things but still be in a position to compete is to kind of realize the artificiality of some of the the tracks within which people specialize. And so what one can do is, you know, it just turns out that there are commonalities. I think, for instance, you did your um, dissertation research on ideas about colonialism, right, and, uh, and post-colonial thought. And then now you're working on philosophy of science and replication crisis and things like that. And there are commonalities between those areas of thought. I know that because I welcome them too. And, and but they're not often explored. They're just a sociological contingency for uh that some things the same kind of people haven't tended to be interested in so there are opportunities to create genuine specializations wherein you're producing top-notch stuff um but outside of the tracks which have already been the paths which have already been well taken and and looking for those uh I mean, opportunities for arbitrage if you want to be cynical about it but but look, look, looking for those kind of opportunities to to forge new pathways and make new connections i think that's what allows you to sort of emerge as a genuine specialist scholar while at the same time pursuing varied interests which aren't typically pursued. I think if you wanna answer a question that is truly interesting, you kind of need different approaches at the same time. Cause like, well, those are human questions, you know, like you, you have to answer it from different perspective. Um, but it's really interesting that you mentioned the lifestyle of academic and then what interests you and drive you and stuff because our uh, kind of next chunk of a question is related to what kind of advice would you give to incoming or current PhD students? And so insofar as the lifestyle of an academic is thinking and writing and speaking about the things that you're passionate about, it, there's obviously also this widespread fear of uh, <laughs> being in an environment where there's a lot of smart people that you're kind of under pressure to produce but also not having like the exact deadline. How do you kind of manage that? 
how do you manage the pressure? And then also just I mean, sometimes the comparison, I think, with other people. Um, there's that line from Milton where uh, it's, it's all... Love it already. It's all gone wrong for Satan and he's aware that it's all gone wrong. And he's sort of vowing that, like, nevertheless, I'll fight on. And he says, so farewell hope and with hope, farewell fear. And I kind of, you know, I, I just think that's the right attitude, despite it being Satan who says it, um, which is, you know, you're not going to be the smartest person in the room. Like a lot, I, I kind of have a standard shtick uh, spiel I give to people who, who ask me about going into um, academia. And, I, and I'd say like, you have to be honest with yourself. Many people go into a PhD, I think on the back of the following experience. They've been the smartest person in the room, in every room they've been in up to this point. Um, they like getting A's. <laughs> they, like, they like being rewarded for how clever they are. And that is overwhelmingly likely to stop at the PhD stage. You probably won't be the smartest person in the room. And definitely by the time you're, you're competing on like the international stage at conferences for jobs and things like that. And it's not all competition, but there is an element of competition, at least when you're trying to get jobs. Um, you know, the odds of you being the smartest person in the world and think about your thing are very low. Um, and I just think kind of, if that's what you want to go into academia for, just don't. Like, it's, it, it won't happen. It's, there are other ways to be happy. That said, I mean, it's not all just psychological. As I said, like, you know, a cruel fact is that because of the, like, we're in a situation where there's massive demand for higher education. Like, the students are still coming. Um, but it's increasingly not supported. And that's to do with our economic and political structure. But the result of that for, for, for individuals caught up in the system is that you're placed in really heavy competition with a lot of people. That's not just in your head. It's not just to do with wanting to be the smartest person in the room. There's a real fact about your, about your economic condition. Um, and what to do to overcome that, I mean, partly, I think is to acknowledge it publicly. So for instance, me and a very good friend of mine, Daniel Malinsky, were going on the market at the same time and going for some of the same jobs. And we, we just, you know, acknowledge this between ourselves. We agreed to share all the information about jobs and try to do the best we can to foster, like, you know, we're on the same team. We want to succeed together. And whenever, you know, I took that attitude of anyone. Um, at one of my job interviews, I even, I knew who the candidate interviewing after me was and I shared with them information, which I thought would be useful to them. Just because psychologically, um, it's, 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 you want, you know, if you succeed, if you get a job, these people are going to be your colleagues. You want to get along with them. You don't want your life to be like that. So it's, it's true. It's a real factor in competition, but you do the best you can to foster a different attitude. Another thing is those socio-political conditions are changeable. And I think that one thing which from things like academic unions and academics involved in public advocacy should be doing is trying to change them. That's not really available to you as a grad student, but in the long run, um, I hope that will make a difference. Um, another thing which I think is worth doing is a kind of like immersion technique, which is try relatively early on to um, give presentations to your peers, um, to go to conferences, to, to get work rejected in some way. Um, and the reason for that is it's just not so bad. I mean, here's a would be personal fact. Um, I really hated public speaking before I came here. Um, I didn't speak at my own mother's funeral because I was just too embarrassed. I, I, I hate public speaking. Academia just kind of forced that out of me because 
you have to give lectures all the time, you have to give public presentations and conferences. Now I actually enjoy public speaking. I, I do it well. Um, I, I find it fun. I like engaging with people and I have a good time. And that is partly because if you do it enough times early, you'll make mistakes and won't be good at it. And just nothing bad happens. Like the, the result of not being good at this thing as an early grad student, no one expects you to be good at it. Professors are actually much more forgiving than people think. Like they don't, they don't care about you that much, just to be honest truth, because there are a lot of grad <laughs> students who just one person give you another bad talk. They'll forget about it by tomorrow. So unless you like really, you know, you, you really get up there and you, you really make a mistake, you just start like accidentally reading out Mein Kampf or something. Like it, it's, it's not going to go that badly and people aren't going to remember it. And so having the opportunity to like fail, fail early, realize it's not so bad, pick yourself and move up, pick yourself up and move on, I think does a lot to overcome those fears. So yeah, that'd be fail and fail early, get the experience learn. it's not so bad. Foster a collaborative attitude with your peers, do everything you can to do that, it's worth it. Um, try and change the underlying socioeconomic conditions. You can't do that alone as part of a movement because that's what's leading to this competition. Try and um, accept you're never going to be the smartest person in the room. Foster that humility. Those are the four things I recommend. That's great. Uh, a great piece of advice. I really love uh, everything you said there. Um, and I think I would like to ask one more question uh, in terms of like personal advice. Um, I mean, I guess everybody kind of goes through this emotional roller coaster of like, I'm so smart, I have such great ideas, and then I, I know nothing. This is shit. Nothing ever makes sense. The world doesn't make sense. Um, my research is um, unusable or not useful to anyone, basically. Um, what would you tell students? And I guess that's kind of related probably to the answer you also uh, gave just now. But like, what would you advise students like how do I get out of that kind of really like depressive uh, episode of like yeah that emptiness I mean you know partly therapy and medication I hope you're okay Joanna um, like so partly you know don't neglect the formal aspects of mental health make sure to do things like maintain a work-life balance in fact there was a thing I didn't respond to what April just asked right which is um, an aspect of academia, right, is there's not really a clear distinction between when you should be working and when you shouldn't be working. You're very much managing your own time. I really like that. That's one of the lifestyle things which I went in for. I like being able to work when I want to work and not work when I don't want to work, but that's far from uniform. For the sakes of one's mental health, it's kind of, it can be like really important to like impose days off. So here's a thing which I didn't used to do, actually. I didn't used to clearly distinguish between weekends and weekdays. My thoughts were, I like philosophy. It's what I would do for fun. Weekends are when I do what I do for fun. I'll do philosophy for weekends. But it's not quite right. You know, there are aspects of the job which are more job-y, and now I don't do them on the weekends. This is something which being with Yuzi taught me. Um, Yuzi's my partner. And um, I think she was just right. She was right that I should have done that more, and it's been a real improvement in my, in my mental health, um, which, you know, allows me to be a better researcher but, and, and teacher. But like more than that, it's just important intrinsically for for how I live as so a doing that kind of imposing routine on yourself can be really helpful in addition to doing that's part of I think maintaining your mental health however even if you do all those things sometimes the world just goes doesn't go your way and you'll find yourself in one of those kinds of uh extreme losses of self-confidence you're right that's very common to, to graduate students 
Um, and I think I would say three things to that. So the first thing to do is to reiterate that previous point. Early experiences of failure are useful, actually, because you also have early experiences of bouncing back. And that learning experience of not only have I done this, but I've been in the bad place before and come out of it is useful. So there's some kind of, it's a weird thing because when you're early on, it's kind of when you're least secure. You've only just got there, you're looking to impress. But in some ways, it's, it's better to like quickly have experiences of, of failure. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is, this is one of the benefits of that building up a collaborative network of people, like with my cohort, my peers, having informal engagements with them as well as swapping each other's work. It's just, you know, it's common sense but just having people who can be there for you, who will spend time with you, who will affirm you, that matters. And that's actually, in some ways, can be harder for a PhD, right? Because often as part of getting a PhD, you're moving to somewhere new, like you're going somewhere where you don't know people. You don't necessarily have a social circle. And depending on the environment, it can be competitive. Now, I should say, really, I try and avoid, I mean, I tell people to try and avoid programs where it's competitive while you're there. I think that's terrible. Um, I try and foster a collaborative attitude and I think it's important the schools do. But, you know, whatever, maybe there's only so much room in the lab or for whatever reason, there can be competition. And like really try and avoid that actually, because it's not just, I think it's intrinsically good, but also instrumentally during those downtimes, having people there for you can be so important. And I think thirdly, it is inevitable. So there's um, Jason Stanley, so this is a, it's a big deal in, the, in, in philosophy. And one of the things I like about him is he's now wrote four or five books. And, he, and he, he, he says publicly, he's said it a few times, that every time he finishes a book, he feels like he can never say anything interesting again, and he's just done. And one of the things which experience of the field gives you is not just your own experience, but you start drawing on the experience of other people. And you'll just see that whoever it is you admire in the field, I don't know who you look up to, right? But like whoever it is you look up to, they'd have had the experience too. And they're doing fine by your lights, you know, they're, they're okay. And so internalizing that, being aware of that, being aware, like even the people who I think are great have these periods and they go through them and they come out of them. It lets you know that the fact that you're experiencing this now isn't evidence, you just can't do it, you're unworthy or something like that. It's just a normal part of being in the field. Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think it's, that's something that, especially when you like just start, you kind of, you don't really know how much other people know. So everybody just looks like they're an expert, but um, I, I realized that even through my academic uh, development, I realized that even the experts might have things that they're not really sure about. So it's really nice to to um, be able to hear that from you that this, um, yeah, it I just like be reminded of, of um, not taking myself too serious, not taking other people too serious. Basically just like doing what I enjoy. There's that um, show in the thick of it. It was a UK comedy about sort of life in the civil service and political advisors for the government. And like the, the sort of the conceit of the show basically is that sort of behind the behind the scenes of the apparatus of government where there's so much concern for like putting on a good PR show and making it look like there's a machine here running smoothly. No one knows what they're doing. Everyone is making it up at the last minute as they go along and like desperately improvising to respond to events they have no control over. And like the thing is, it's just, it's just life. Um, like one of the things, like I feel like one of the things I learned in academia which was like terrifying to me is 
the experts also don't know what they're doing. They're making up as they go along, vaguely panic that they don't really know what they're talking about. There's not some like time when that goes away. Like there will never be any adults in the room. It's always just people pretending that they're not kids anymore. And um, learning to live with the fundamental existential dread that involves is, uh, I don't know, fun. Yeah, that's what you've you got to do. So that's, 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 I guess, what I'd say to that. Um, it's important to cultivate plan B. Like, don't make going into academia the be-all and end-all of your life. That's partly strategically useful. It's hard to get a job. It's good to have other plans. But also partly the attitude of realizing that this is a choice, that there are other valuable things I could be doing, it guards against like too much internalization of academia's status hierarchy and over fetishization of science of academic prestige. And that's that's also worth doing, even if you don't end up taking a plan B, even if you end up in academia. Yeah, I think that's really, really, really good. Um, I do want to transition into the next section um because we we mentioned joy before what are some moments that make you feel lucky and happy to be a philosopher oh i mean this is going to sound cheesy but it's an honest answer is is all the time i mean uh, before my generation it's not actually just me and my family but before my generation i don't know if there's any ever been anyone in my family who liked what they did um People work because they had to work. Um, the the jobs were miserable, often taken under conditions where there just weren't many other things they were in a position to do. And I was very aware of that as 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 a kid. Like you know, my my dad always encouraged me to do what he wanted to, just to like don't don't end up working the job like he worked, but he really hated it basically every day. He's retired now, so he's he's happy now. But like he had a tough time with things. And every day I wake up thinking. I like what I do. And I was thinking like last week on Sunday, I realized I'm looking forward to a week where I just, every day I'm, I, I know what I'm doing that day. I would enjoy doing it. And I'm like really ultra aware of how rare that is. When I was a kid, like what was my first job? It was, I was a butcher's boy. So I'd get up at 5 a.m., get to the butcher's for before it opened and then scrape the blood off the freezer floor. Um, so it was still workable. And then I'd be carrying heavy things around all day. That was a indoor and outdoor job with lots of heavy lifting. Um, and then go into the main floor of the customers every now and again, get shouted at the bus for cutting sausages too slowly. I hated that, right? Like, you know, like everything about that. Was yeah. horrible. But like, look, that was people's lives. I was a kid working there, but there are plenty of people who had grown up and that was what they were just doing. And I understand why they're doing it. It's, it's honest work, um, but I hated it. I hated it a lot. And so I always, ever since I was a grad student, basically, that's when I started getting paid to do this. And I was like, I'm getting paid to do something I love. And that just feels like a blessing always. So we thought it would be interesting to ask you basically 10 questions. Five of them are actually questions. And then the last five is usually just like, you choose between one and the other thing that I said. Mm -hmm. um, but they're supposed to be answerable within about 10 seconds each. Okay. I'm just going to read them out. And then we'll just uh, guess that and go. Favorite philosopher? Zhuangzi. Favorite thing to do on a Saturday afternoon? Um, <laughs> I wish it was cooler, but nap. What is the one thing that always makes you excited? Uh, no, I'm going to get to spend time with using my partner. What is the one book that you keep going back to? The, the difficulty is picking just one. Um, Three. 
pig pig three okay thank you yeah well in that case i will say well turned upside down which is a history book about the english revolution i may be biased because i'm rereading that right now so i guess it's an instance of me coming back to the book two is a different history book it's kind of the thing which got me into philosophy in many ways it's a book by clr james called the black jacobins it's about the haitian revolution um and what led to it and where it worked and where it didn't and the third thing is the Zhuangzi, which is a text by Zhuangzi, um, <laughs> the person, the book is named after him, and it's about um, his approach to philosophy and life, which I find very inspiring. In fact, I'm, let me change it. I'm going to take out the world turned upside down. I'm just biased by the fact that I'm rereading it now. I'm probably not going to constantly come back to it. I'll say instead the work of Epictetus, the, the discourses. I love how you like turn back wow. to your bookshelf and like check yeah, your yeah. bookshelf to get some like he's like, what am I reading? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the approach. Um, last one. What is the one characteristic that you cannot tolerate in people? Any disagreement with me on any issue, no matter how minor. <laughs> any what? Disagreement with me on any issue, oh. no matter how minor. I see. I see. The Thank perfect, you very much uh, for your quality for, for uh, philosophy, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And when it's like um, on, on the internet, and I, I must do something about it. Actually, let me let me pause real quick and ask you. Uh, so, what do you do when people disagree with you? Oh, I was lying. I never care. <laughs> people are foolish and wrong. I was like, you know, you do you. Well, then let us go on. Uh, sunny days or rainy days? Sunny days, rainy nights. Writing or speaking. Damn, these are hard. Okay. Um, these questions writing. are good. <laughs> writing, I'll say. Writing. Okay. Morning or evening? This should be easy. Uh, evening. Politics or philosophy? Philosophy. Last ultimate question. Kant or Hegel? Hegel. Hegel. That's... Hegel, really? Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, um, not difficult. Um, Hegelian I, I... writing? Well, no, no. If it turns into sort of writing style, then like neither. Are no, I'm just kidding. But like, if it's um, in terms of the actual content of their thought, I guess more it's like, I think Hegel was a more interesting social philosopher and Kant was a more interesting thinker about like the nature of science and epistemology. And so right now, because I'm rereading the book about the English Revolution, I guess I've got social philosophy yeah. in my mind. So Hegel's more salient. If I'm doing my more philosophy of science stuff, then Kant would be more salient and I prefer Kant. Rudolf Carnap is one of my favorite philosophers, and he was very much a, a Kantian. And so, tell me more about your favorite philosopher. Sure. So, uh, Zhuangzi was a sort of philosopher from the classical period of Chinese philosophy, and I, I think of him as one of the great skeptics of history. So, there's an interpretation of him which I broadly agree with from Joseph Needham, the historian of thought in China. Zhuangzi is living during the Warring States periods. In this time, there are all these feudal lords battling to gain control of what was once the unified Zhao Empire, what we now think of as China. There were many philosophers at the time thinking about how to bring peace and unity to China. Um, so the Confucians become the most famous of these sects, but they, were, they weren't the only one. There were, there were plenty of others. Zhuangzi in all this represents the voice of kind of like intelligent peasant rebellion where what you're seeing at this time is people in little villages are being sort of swept away. If, if, the, if, you know, if the law turns up, then all the men are conscripted, all of the women and children are put to work in the fields to feed the army, 
And if you if you if you don't do those things, you're killed and your village is burned down. And the the power difference between the well-organized feudal states and you know little isolated villages is comical. They, they can't really resist it. So what Zhuangzi does is he sort of articulates the thought that all of the things which the feudal laws, which the ever so fancy metropolitan people think gives them the right to do this, they don't know what they're talking about. Like it may be the case that like they simply have the power to do it, but they're certainly not justified in doing it. They have no reason to know that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And their claims otherwise are just pretenses, foolish pretenses. They can't see through themselves. They, they, they take themselves too seriously. They don't know their real place in the order of things. And Zhuangzi, via a series of arguments, stories, metaphors, he, he sort of like generates support for that kind of skeptical undermining of both claims to knowledge and the social mores and claims to justification action of the elites of his day. But what's more, he does it with a, a really distinctive philosophical personality. Like Zhuangzi is a joy to read in a way that very few philosophers are. He's genuinely funny. It's, it's, it's so rare that philosophers are actually funny. He's, he's genuinely a funny author. He comes across as chill and nice. I mean, when I, it was I had this experience I really have when I read him for the first time years ago now, I, I just felt like I was encountering like a kindred soul, someone who I'd want to be and want to be friends with. And that was like really sort of beautiful and moving to me. So I think I, I, so I, I can't recommend him highly enough. You have to kind of get used to this kind of lyrical, not always very serious style, but like I guarantee you that if you take the time to, to, to sit with the material and see what's there, like it's the real deal. There's, there's really a lot of wisdom there and there's really like a evincing an approach to life and approach to philosophy's questions, which I think we could all learn a lot from. It's, it's interesting because you, you describe Zhuangzi in a way that is very modern, but Zhuangzi is actually a philosopher that exists in 4th BC. <laughs> so it's, 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 I mean, I think it's tremendous that you actually see his characters through his writing. And he does have like a very distinct like storytelling, completely informal. But at the same time, you can see the quality of thinking like just through dozens of words, really. Yeah, no, that, that's, I think that's the best thing. I mean, this is kind of, at this point, you, you know, you'll see that I'm in some ways describing my own ideal for myself. And, but he's kind of obviously a very like silly person and yet is also very like competent and interesting. Like he's like really a deep thinker in a way that few people are. And he does that while at the same time being lighthearted. And I, I really wish I could be, I really wish other people could do that. And yeah, I will say the one thing which I think him and Epictetus have in common, um, and maybe even as well, I'd recommend Zero Yacoub, who's an Ethiopian thinker, is this is kind of like timelessness to them. Like it's certainly that people of their age, when you read it, it's clear that they're responding to the conditions they live under. Um, but it's hard not to read them and be moved to reflect on your own life. It, it really, they really somehow tap into something, which I think um, would move anyone. I think that's a that's a perfect place to end, actually, um, our conversation. Cool. And thank you so much for all the insights and the wisdom. It's it's very helpful for anyone, not only you know people who are currently PhD or considering it, but also just in general, humans wants to seek knowledge and uh, live by their own definitions. <laughs> and I know you take uh, compliments very badly so yeah. i'm just gonna say one more thing no i'm just kidding <laughs> um april i will turn so up much. in chicago but thank you so much my pleasure thank you for having me